0: Hello and welcome, UVA Speaks is a podcast of Lifetime Learning, a division of the Office of Engagement at the University of Virginia. Lifetime Learning brings the knowledge and expertise of UVA's faculty to the university's alumni, parents, and friends. My name is Susan Lynch and I am the Associate Director of Lifetime Learning at the University of Virginia's Office of Engagement. This podcast features Dr. Kevin Pelfrey, the Harrison Wood Jefferson Scholars Foundation Professor of Neurology, and the University of Virginia's Brain Institute. Dr. Pelfrey is a leader in groundbreaking research on autism, using brain science to develop biologically-based tools for detecting and tailoring treatments for individuals on the autism spectrum. In this podcast, Dr. Pelfrey will talk to us about autism, the research being done here at UVA, the incidents and misconceptions of autism, and the latest findings of this important research. So thank you, Dr. Pelfrey, for being here today and sharing your research with us.
1: Sure thing, thank you, Susan.
0: So let's start with a broad discussion. So what is autism and why is it important to study autism?
1: So autism is a fairly common um, neurodevelopmental disorder. So about um, one in a hundred kids meet the diagnosis for autism. And the diagnosis involves uh, looking at the behavior of the kids and uh, their developmental history. And we uh, talk about someone having autism, if they have difficulties in social um, functioning and communication, uh, so the way they interact with other people and their ability to um, uh, both speak and um, non-verbally communicate with other people. And we also look for um, the presence of repetitive behaviors. So things like hand-wringing or hand-flapping, um, lining up toys um, in a you know, sort of an unusual way and being um, very obsessed with doing that over and over again. And um, also um, look um, when the kids are uh, perhaps a little older for a lot of rigidity in the way they're thinking um, and the types of things that they think about. And when you kind of see those um, deficits in social behavior on the one hand, and um, increased repetitive behavior and rigid thinking. On the other, um, you start to to think about autism and you ask about the developmental history and uh, milestones and when um, the kids uh, did certain important things like, you know, notice um, gestures and start to use gestures to communicate and um, you also look at the extent to which the kids make eye contact appropriately, seek out interactions with others. And it's that kind of configuration of things that you're interested in when you're trying to make the diagnosis of autism. I
0: understand. Okay, so I, I I hear that UVA is making a strong investment in autism research. Can you speak to the your work and your work of your colleagues across grounds? It sounds like this is a pan university initiative.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, this really started with the um, what's called the Star Initiative, um, led by um, Dr. Mike Mazurek and. Um, what she has built is this really uh, amazing clinical and research infrastructure. Um, And that's, uh, she's based in the school of education and human development, but has um, colleagues and collaborators within developmental pediatrics and within neurology and and I'm based in neurology. Um, And that, infrastructure for being able to uh, make autism diagnoses um, develop you know novel treatments for autism um, the ability to to provide well-known evidence-based interventions and to support researchers across um, grounds to be able to actually study autism and contribute to that um, growing scientific body of evidence is really what that program is all about. And so um, at this point, we have researchers within data science that are are, um, focused on autism research. Um, Certainly the School of Education, as I mentioned, School of Medicine, Department of Neuroscience, Neurology, um, Psychiatry, really uh, psychology as well. Um, so there's several uh, cognitive neuroscientists within psychology that have strong research programs that include studying autism as well, um, like uh, Jamie Morris and Jessica Connolly. Um, so it's really just uh, within practically every school at this point, um, we have uh, at some somebody with Uh, interest in autism and um, contributing to this broader mission of trying to understand autism very, very broadly. And the university enabled this to to happen um, both by providing um, funding for the STAR initiative, um, but also funding for the Brain Institute, which um, I'm part of, and and then also uh, just uh, in, by going out and then being willing to make hires like mine um, to bring new faculty to the university that are studying autism and interested in autism.
0: That's great. So wonderful that it's such a broad based initiative. Uh, can you share the latest science and findings from your particular research?
1: Oh, sure. Um, let's see. So, the, the newest work that we've um, Been focused on is looking at um, sex differences in how autism presents and what might actually be the underlying causes of autism. So um, we have a a National Institute of uh, National Institutes of Health supported um, Autism uh, Center for Excellence, and we're the lead site, um, but this is actually a national network that. goes out and collects data on um, young people with autism. Um, Currently uh, we're studying adolescents with autism, um, kind of making the transition to young adulthood. And the reason we're interested in sex differences is that one of the things that you see um, with autism is a, um, a, a greater likelihood for boys to develop autism versus girls. And that's um, of interest for a variety of reasons. So it sort of suggests that girls are protected from developing autism. Um, and at the same time, we think that we're missing some girls with autism in terms of um, our diagnostic ability, because they, they Present slightly different, so have um, kind of a, a very interesting scientific question there. Like, why is it that the girls are less likely to develop autism? But also, we want to know um, to what extent are we um, missing girls because then um, they're not getting the the interventions that that might benefit them. And what we found is that. Um, really this difference between boys and girls, um, it is actually a biological difference in terms of the brain systems that are involved in autism, as well as the genetics that contribute to the development of autism. So really different um, underlying causes of autism uh, for boys and girls. And that was a big surprise um, scientifically for us. And it's, Important practically because it suggests that there might be um, the need to develop different approaches to intervene for um, girls versus boys in order to optimize outcomes and, and optimize their development. Just, you know, based on knowledge of, of the fact that there are these underlying different causes. Um, so that gives us a lead into um, figuring out how to to better intervene um, for each child. And that kind of takes us a step closer to where ultimately we wanna be, which is um, much more of a precision medicine approach um, using the neuroscience to actually inform how we um, intervene and help each individual child And one of the, what we've discovered is one of the elements that we need to think about there is whether the child is a boy or a girl. Um, And that on some level can seem sort of obvious, but we had to really understand the differences in brain development between boys and girls um, and the underlying genetic drivers of that development in order to understand what that difference really was. Um, and that in the end will help us to, um, really identify girls who are at risk for developing autism and in general, um, uh, help many more children with autism than we were able to before.
0: Great. Great. Can we take a moment and, and step back and can you speak to some of the misconceptions of autism? I think that there are many.
1: Oh, sure. Yeah. So, um, the misconceptions have varied over the years. So, um, you know, one of the um, biggest misconceptions, which hopefully isn't um, a common one now, but certainly was for many, many years, is that somehow um, a style of parenting or a particular um, thing or set of things a parent does, can cause autism, and um, there's there's really no scientific evidence for that, and all kinds of scientific evidence um, that says the opposite. You know that it, it, um, the theory. Um, you know, well, it wasn't unfortunately it wasn't that long ago. It was, it was really the you know, kind of 50s and 60s was that. Um, Mothers who were um, cold towards their children um, and and non um, not as responsive as perhaps um, people thought they should be were causing autism. And so this theory has been completely disproven. Um, You know, it's just not not accurate. But there there are certainly um, sometimes you'll still hear suggestions of. Of this, um, depending on um, the, the kind of science within a given country or um, kind of beliefs about parenting and stigma about autism, but um, in the United States, it's it's been completely um, you know cast aside at, by, by modern. Um, Medicine, so that's one. Uh, another is that um, vaccines cause autism. Um, this is certainly one that um, the current, you know, events, the recent um, uh, pandemic, and the development of a vaccine. Um, has, has brought back up, not, not because of anything specific about the COVID-19 vaccine. And I want to be clear, um, there's absolutely no suggestion <laughs> that that, that um, might be causing autism. But um, over the years, there has been um, various uh, concerns raised about uh, vaccination, um, the vaccines that kids get early in development, especially for um, uh, measles, um, rubella and, um, uh, and mumps. And so that was the result of a paper that was put out um, uh, by a physician and in a very high profile journal, but it turned out that the um, paper was completely um, it was really fictitious. They, they made up the data, um, and so that's been retracted. But that's been a, a misconception that um, has stuck. You know, and, and I, I still get questions um, all the time about um, you know what how vaccines might cause autism and do they, and, you know, I always, my answer is there's, there's no scientific evidence um, that vaccines cause autism. And um, uh, if anything, um, the science, you you can never, the problem in science is that you can never prove um, what we call the null hypothesis. (laughs) So you, you can only, um you know gather more and more evidence that something isn't true Um, and so that misconception is hard to kill because you can just keep stating it as a fact and then we we as scientists have to develop more and more science to say well no actually and this is this is not the case and um as scientists, we would be just as worried if we thought it were the case as, as, as people were saying it is. So I reassure the audience that um, vaccines don't uh, cause autism. Um, let's see, one last misconception. Um, it's a, well, maybe a constellation of misconceptions. So a lot of children with autism also have Um, intellectual disabilities. And so um, maybe uh, at least 60% um, of kids with autism will have some level of intellectual disability, meaning that their um, um, IQs, um, levels of intelligence and their ability to adapt to the world and kind of function on their own is affected. in addition to having autism. And so autism itself affects your ability to interact and adapt to the world, but um, it, it's not necessarily the case that if you have autism that you will also have intellectual disability, um, but often you do. So what that leads to is um, a the idea that um, of a spectrum of ability um, within autism, ranging from um, kids who are find it very difficult to interact socially and to um, uh, communicate their their thoughts and, and actions to others, but who are very very intelligent and can be particularly gifted and brilliant in one area, er- you know, one or more areas. Um, oftentimes, it will be their special interest that they're, they're, um, profoundly gifted in, you know, so, um, and those kids make up a, um, proportion of kids with autism. And then there will be kids of average intelligence who have autism. Um, and then there will be, uh, Um, small majority of kids, so, you know, more than half, who also have some intellectual disability. So the misconception is um, sometimes it will be that autism um, gives you some superhuman particular power, um, which sometimes autism comes with these striking, incredible skills, we call them savant skills, um, but neurotypical people can have those too. And um, then, you know, and the misconception that, oh, well, you know, they have autism, then they're never gonna be able to um, live outside of their parents' home or hold a job. And that, for the majority of people um, with autism, that's not true.
0: Right. Thank you for that uh, description. So, why is it that the incident in, incidence of autism is increasing, and yeah. what are the factors driving this increase?
1: Yeah. So, um, so several. So, talking about incidence, um, you know, of course, what we mean is that the number of kids um, out of all the children born the number of kids being diagnosed with autism is um, increasing. So I think at the beginning of the conversation, I said around one in a hundred, really depending on the study and the methodology of the study, um, recent estimates put it at one in 54, which is pretty shocking. And um, so there's multiple contributions to this. So the biggest one is um, the the growing awareness of what autism is. So we're getting a lot better at actually picking up um, on autism. It's sort of like um, uh, you know if we didn't screen for vision um, early in school, um, you know w- w- there many many kids where we would never know they that they need glasses and so what's happening now is uh, routinely um, not as routinely as we would like but you know not universally but routinely pediatricians screen for autism um, using brief checklists and 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 also just um from our efforts to get out in the community and give lectures, and um, physicians get continuing credit for attending these lectures. And um, so then when they see a child with autism, they're much more likely to recognize what they're seeing and then refer to a specialist. So that's um that's a major, major element of it. Mm-hmm. A second part is that um, in the um late 80s, um, early 80s, really the first effort to formalize the diagnosis of autism happened. And um, that formalization is in what um, doctors, we doctors call um, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. So it's our go to book for defining all possible conditions that you might encounter. And it really, was it was that early 80s edition that first um, defined it. And even though autism was, was, was kind of discovered and defined um, uh, in the 40s, it took that long to kind of formalize uh, a true diagnostic definition. And that one was fairly narrow. Um, in terms of what one would call autism. And it really captured the kids who also had intellectual disability. Um, and then over time, that's been revised to be broader so that we're, we're much more aware now in the medical and scientific communities that autism is a much broader thing, um, that, that you don't, it isn't, only the kids who who have intellectual disability and can't or don't speak. It's um, also the kids who um, have have fairly subtle social difficulties, but but difficulties nonetheless, and um, uh, more subtle repetitive behaviors and and thoughts, um, but still provide or get in the way of of their daily living and flourishing. So that expansion of the definition um, has really um, also driven the um, increase in the incidence, um, meaning the the diagnosis of autism. So from what we can tell that those two factors, kind of the broadening of the definition and the increase in the, um, uh, the um, ascertainment of, of autism, the recognition of it, the awareness, have, have driven those numbers higher. There's still um, I mentioned I've mentioned genetics several times, and, and I should have said at the outset, that autism is highly heritable. um, And what that means is that it runs in families. um, And if you have a a sibling with autism, you yourself are much more likely to um, develop autism. And so that's led to us um, really um, strongly looking at You know, what are the genetics of autism, and and, um, what are the genes driving autism? A lot of progress has been made in that area, so that's part of the increase in autism as well.
0: Very interesting. So, lastly, for those who might have a who are listening, who might have a child or a family member on the autism spectrum, can you speak to some of the interventions that a family might consider?
1: Oh, sure. Yeah. So. um, you, you know, obviously want to look for things that have, um, some evidence base. And so by evidence base, what we mean is, um, that they've been studied, um, with randomized controlled trials that, um, have shown that they're effective and they don't hurt, um, uh, any of the participants, um, and that they improve, um, uh, in a statistically significant way uh, as compared to um, another intervention or compared to um, um, a wait list control or something like that. So those are important words to kind of listen for when you're considering an intervention. But the types of interventions that we have um, available um, for Uh, especially for younger kids um, and more severely impacted kids, um, different sorts of behavioral interventions that fall under um, the kind of broad category of applied behavior analysis um, have been, are are evidence-based and have been implemented successfully. And they they certainly help, Um, some kids quite a bit, they don't help everyone and no intervention does. That's why we want to get to a a much stronger place of precision medicine, Um, but they, they benefit some kids and most kids they benefit a little bit and some kids they benefit a lot from that type of intervention. And that's a family of interventions. Um, You know, at one point there was one thing called applied behavior analysis, Um, but now you'll hear terms like um, pivotal response treatment. Um, You'll hear the Denver model um, of behavioral intervention. Those are two, um, another is called Jasper. Um, That was one that was developed at UCLA. Um, They're all um, similar. They have subtle differences and might work differently for different kids because of those subtle differences, um, but, uh, but they have more similarities than differences. And so, and they're all evidence-based in the sense that um, uh, the important kind of randomized control studies have, have occurred. So that, you know, for kids in the age range of about, you know, say, Two and a to two years old to about six or seven, eight years old. Those are the types of interventions for which we have a good evidence base. Um, past that age range and, and kind of overlapping a little bit with the upper end of that age range, different social skills models of um, and social skills training models have been very successful. Um, So um, one in particular is called the PEERS model. Um, It was also developed at UCLA. That's something that we're actively studying here at the University of Virginia. We're very interested in in, um, using um, our brain imaging techniques to predict which treatments will work for which kids to kind of get to this precision medicine um, approach. But that's um, those types of social skills where you know a small group of children will or or young people um, because with with those types of programs um, they can be particularly good for adolescents and young adults as well. Um, they'll get together and they'll have a, a leader, kind of a coach that is working the working with them through different ideas and exposing them to different settings and letting them try out um, different skills. And so that has been a a particularly effective approach. Um, Let's see. And then cognitive behavioral therapy uh, or therapies would be the other kind of large area Uh, that has shown evidence-based. So for example, many kids with autism um, also have significant anxiety, um, you know, and that makes a lot of sense. And if if you're, um, if you find social interactions very difficult, um, they can be very anxiety provoking and you can get into this um, kind of um, negative feedback loop where you get more and more anxious, about all of these uh, people around you that you don't really understand and can't control. And it's it's very uh, anxiety provoking. So cognitive behavioral therapy is something you do usually one-on-one with a therapist where you work through different ideas that you have about the world and, um, and think through different scenarios and um, it will help you learn different ways to cope and adapt, you know, how you're interacting with the world. And so that's another set of um, evidence-based people will say, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, and it can go, you know, by other names as well. Um, uh, but you know, that's really, uh, another family of therapies that have evidence, uh, backing them up. So those are three. And then of course, people will ask about medications. There's no, um, medication for autism, um, right now. And, um, my personal point of view is that we will develop Medications that help with certain aspects of autism, but there will never be a, a pill that just, you know, oh, you have autism, take this. Um, what w- will likely be the important advances will be that there will be some medications that, when given in combination with those evidence based interventions that I mentioned, will help the brain to better um, learn in the context of those interventions, and that will help children with autism and and, and young people with autism um, to to improve in terms of reducing autism symptoms and um, living richer, fuller lives that are more self-directed. Um, but right now, you know, there's there's not um, any medications that are are you know approved to treat autism. But oftentimes, um, people um, with autism will be taking medications that are helping with some of the associated symptoms like anxiety and irritability. So um, a, a lot of times, it can be beneficial to a family to search out a a psychiatrist or um, or a neurologist or a primary care physician if they're comfortable with, um, and they know a lot about autism, to um, look for medications that might help with some of those symptoms. And and actually that raises an important um, point that I hadn't mentioned before, which is that autism almost never... Um, appears alone, Um, there are many associated medical conditions that people are more at risk for if they have autism. And one of the really big ones is epilepsy. And so um, we, we think that one of the things that's happening in the brain in autism that increases risk for autism is an instability of excitation inhibition in the brain and that this also um, is related to the development of seizures. And so a a, a fairly significant proportion of people with autism will develop seizures either early in development and have seizures um, that can hopefully be controlled um, in consultation with a neurologist with medication. Um, And that will happen either early in development um, and, and then the other um, big time period to really be on the lookout for potential seizures is um, adolescence and puberty. That something about the reorganization of the adolescent brain um, opens the brain back up to being at risk for seizures again. So you'll see another spike in the number of, um, of cases of, of epilepsy within adolescents with autism as well. And for now, thankfully for epilepsy, lots of um, uh, medications have been developed and approaches um, that have been um, very successful for, for treating epilepsy. That's an area of, of brain science that I think we've made major achievements. Um, and at UVA, I think we have some of the the very best scientists in the world who have developed those interventions like um, Jajit Kapoor is one, Howard Goodkin, um, the department of neurology. So I'm really proud of um, the kind of leadership in epilepsy that we have here at UVA. And that's something for families to be aware of. um, If they have a a person on the spectrum um, in their lives because um, as I mentioned, usually you either see those seizures you know, fr- from the start or you can be surprised in adolescence with the emergence of seizures.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Pelfrey um, for sharing your, your knowledge and your expertise. You've certainly given all of us many things to think about. Um, as I mentioned to you prior to the recording, this is an issue that has impacted my family. And so it's so great to hear about the research being done here at UVA, to seek to understand the issue further. So thank you so much.
1: It's my pleasure. Thank you very much.
0: And I wanna thank everybody for listening, for upcoming podcasts, and other lifetime learning programming, recordings, and blogs. Please visit our website at alumni.virginia.edu backslash learn.